Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of The Charting Room, a podcast where today's hot topics meets mental health conversations. This is Kivon here with a reminder that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests. This podcast is meant to be informative and entertaining and is not a substitute for one-on-one medical or mental health care of any nature, nor the suggestion of any diagnosis or treatment. Remember that only a licensed provider can evaluate your situation, provide a diagnosis, or render other medical and mental health advice to you. Now, let's dig in. Welcome to the charting room. What's good? It's your girl, Kivon, and I am a licensed clinical social worker. This is Dr. Anthony Andrews. I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor. This is Dr. Sheree Watkins. I'm also a licensed clinical mental health counselor. Dr. Phil Murray, board certified in adult and child psychiatry. And we are your charting room co-hosts back for another episode. How's it going, guys? And gals? Good. Yeah, maintaining, maintaining. Trying to stay alive. Oh, no. oh, we're alive. Uh, oh, uh, guys, I didn't tell you, uh, but I gave a presentation today. Really? Ooh, tell us about it. Why I'm wearing my fancy clothes. <laughs> fancy Smith. I did a, um, I did the department grand rounds on racism and mental health. Oh, wow. Ooh, was it recorded? How is that? Uh, I think it was recorded, but I don't know if it can go outside of the Teams platform. So I had like a 10 to 15 minute like technology lag. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then so I, thankfully some folks stuck with it. But I didn't realize people's reactions until afterwards because I couldn't see the chat box. But it was received pretty well. Wow. Well, you can record on Teams and you can download it because we have Teams here. So let me know if you can download it and then you can share it. And we can share it from our, no, from our charting room website. Okay. I'll, I'll see what I, I can love find. it. Yeah, the world needs to see that, Bill. That's yeah, what were some of the main takeaways from your presentation? Uh, I mean, the overall kind of learning objectives were basically looking at racism, kind of putting together a framework, um, looking at it through internalized, interpersonal, and institutional, uh, recognizing that it can come up in the treatment encounter basically recognizing that we can perpetuate some of this stuff and then uh, providing a little bit of information on ways to undo it and some resources. So, yeah, thank you. Good stuff, man. What's interesting with that too, Phil, is I'm writing an article for NADAC on um, how to create supportive um, environments um, from white clinicians to people of color, BIPOC. And so um, one of the main things that I mentioned just to kind of start off was two main points that um, they was very... I guess they wasn't necessarily um, aware of it um, when getting some of the editor's reviews of my article was that um, the first suggestion was, you know, how does your waiting room look? And especially that's important if you have multiple sites. Does it look one way in certain um, sides of town and on a different way in certain um, certain areas? And so that's one of the main things that I share because what an environment can look like can also be a very big determining factor if someone feels welcome. 
Right. And so um, I talked about that in the article. And also, how long do they have to wait? Are they greeted? And then how do you greet them? And I said, the biggest pet peeve that I have as being just a person of color is mispronouncing my name. So you know you can't pronounce my first name because you like, mm, I don't know. But my last name says Watkins or my former last name was Macmillan. So instead of calling me Mrs. Macmillan, you try to attempt to mess up my name. And then when I correct you, you say, oh, OK, well, come on back. So I talked mm. about that in the article because that can be a, a game changer. Like, I don't know if I'm going to come back because when I corrected you, you, you didn't acknowledge the importance um, and the uniqueness of my name. Mm. Right. 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 So right, what, so what would you like them to, would, would you like them to just ask, uh, you know, how do you pronounce it from the beginning or would you like them to just start with Miss Watkins or, you know, I'm interested. I'm open for both. So if you came and said, um, good evening, um, Mrs. Watkins, um, no, how are you? How do you pronounce your first name for me? Or right. in the form of a question, are you Mrs. Watkins? Can you pronounce your first name for me so I can address you correctly? Either or. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I'm open to um, either one, but I'm not going to be the, the spokesperson for all people of color. And so that's just my preference. What about right. that? That made yeah you know it makes sense because I was on I was doing court hearings um, and a judge uh, pronounced it was a it was a black female lawyer um, and her name I forgot what her name was but uh, you know the judge was like I think we misspelled we have your records misspelled in the name because your name is uh, you know you're pronouncing it this way but we have it spelled this way and she was like no it's, it's spelled correctly uh, you know this, this is how it's pronounced and she was like oh really. Like, it's like, okay, come on, lady. Like, you know, you got the name wrong. This is how she pronounces the name. This is how she spells it, you know? So it's, it's crazy how, uh, like you said, people's names just get dismissed and automatically they want, uh, you know, somebody's name to be spelled how um, they're used to seeing it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, right? That's crazy. I mean, but also, like, outside of private practice, clinics are generally trash when it comes to customer service. Right. Period. I'm saying Full that's generally speaking as far as, you know what, let me not indict all of healthcare. I will say it's some behavioral health. No, I'm just saying, I'll say it's some behavioral health sites because people like, you know, these patients are X, Y, and Z, they'll be fine. If you go on a lot of mental health facilities, stuff is old, run down, and ragged. And I know it has to do with reimbursements and money, but it, it's it's free to humanize folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. I usually, I will give it a shot sometimes. If I know I'm completely out of my depth, I'll just be like, all right, just tell me how to pronounce your name and just go right. from there. Um, yeah, and I, I realized for me, like internally, I get a little bit frustrated when anybody, uh, whether it's a black person, a person of uh, Asian descent, African descent, whatever, uh, automatically just goes to the default of pre-correcting their name or letting somebody slide. You know, I try my best to say no, like it's your name, it's important, so I'm going to do my best to get it right. Now that's yeah. when I'm at my absolute best behavior if i'm running behind and everything i'm like i get in here but you know usually <laughs> i will do my best i'm just you know keeping it on it so i will do my best to at least provide that um and go from there i mean yeah, i'm yeah. with you phil i i've been you know some of my students are uh you know they have definitely diverse names and i've been trying to pronounce them every week each week and i've just been jacking it up each week and I've been trying my best, and they keep telling me, "No, you can use the nickname." You know, that's what everybody else calls me, and I'm trying to do it. Uh, but it's, it's definitely difficult. So I definitely understand where you're coming from. We're trying to make the effort there. Yeah, 
Yeah. What about you, so, Kivon? You didn't mention your uh, experience. What would you prefer? Because, listen, my name is Kivon. So. <laughs> Man, look, depending on the day of the week, I might have called you Kavanae, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Kavanae, Kavane, all the things. And when I was younger, I would actually just allow people to call me whatever they wanted to call me. Um, but as I have gotten older, I have been intentional about correcting people and encouraging them to say my name correctly or don't say it at all. Um, and then most of my friends and family call me KK. Um, but I even stopped introducing myself as KK to like strangers because I want you to put the effort in, in learning my name and, and pronouncing it pronouncing it correctly and KK could be reserved for people that you know I'm familiar with so you know what? I'm gonna so- change my I'm gonna change my name for you your name in my phone because when we first met I forgot how to pronounce your name I just saved it under like KK King or something <laughs> like that and I was like man so it's still like that in my phone so you know what you're right I'm gonna change that I gotta give you your full name in my phone so uh, Come know. on, give me my flowers, <laughs> Aunt. <laughs> hey, so there has been much buzz on the internet, on the TVs, in the group oh, chats. TVs. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do me. On the internet, in the TVs. Internet, like, internet. Internet. Ooh, but the TVs? No, it's just one of them. Well, unless you got multiple in your house. No, I can't recover oh, that one. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you forgot we're talking to Kevon. Kevon every room. <laughs> every room. Go back to the first few episodes. Learn about Bougie Kevon. Shut All right. up. All right, y'all. So the, across the airwaves, the conversation around Lovecraft Country has been all the buzz, right? Like everybody is talking about how amazing this show is. Um, We want to spend some time today talking about a particular episode, episode seven, where Hippolyta gets access to a time travel machine and goes back to several spaces. And so I want Bill to describe the episode, and then we're going to jump in and have a conversation about episode seven of Lovecraft Country. Man, you didn't even describe the series. No, none. You just... I'm sorry. Right. I don't do well with describing movies or TV shows. So I typically defer to the expert, which is you. So take it away, Phil. I mean, look, all right. I think we're all just enjoying some good cinema. But uh, all right. So Lovecraft Country comes on HBO starring uh, Jonathan Majors and Journey Smollett. Uh, it took everything to not say smooye, but uh, that's cool. But uh, <laughs> so basically, Jonathan plays a gentleman named uh, Atticus. Jeez, uh, I don't forgot his last name already. Uh, but his name is Atticus and he's a Korean War vet. He goes home to Chicago because his father is missing. He searches for his father, finds out a little bit about his history, and it's this entire journey that involves magical societies uh, and really a bunch of sci-fi and nerd stuff, which is an absolute blast. So as the story goes on, you get introduced to a lot of characters, and uh, we can talk about them later because this one particular character is his aunt. Uh, Her name's Hippolyta, as Kivon said, and so intelligent, brilliant, beautiful Black woman. Um, and her husband gets killed towards the beginning of the show. And so she follows up 
trying to find this out. And so she goes on her journey to find this. They end up in a situation where there is, I don't know if we want to call it a time machine, interdimensional transport, but she ends up going on this journey where she has a lot of self-discovery and really starts to own her power. Uh, and I think the timing of the episode, because it was released days after the grand jury uh, announcement in Breonna Taylor's case. And so I think, I mean, there's no way they could have planned it this far in advance, but I think it led to, I would say from the outside, because I'm not a black woman, but at least from the reactions I've seen, it led to a form of catharsis in the midst of that moment where, you know, folks have been marginalized, literally harmed and killed. And you get to see this woman on screen really seize her power in a way that you had in the preceding episodes. Um, and also, I mean, on this show, they just got some bad sisters, like so many dope characters, uh, specifically black woman characters, but also the woman playing uh, Christina Brett. Actually, no, every woman character on this show is mm-hmm. amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know some of the, our followers have been following the show, so I just thought it would be great for us to just talk about it. Uh, so, Kevon, uh, <laughs> what were your kind of thoughts and feelings as you were watching the episode? I actually cried watching that episode. Wow. To see Hippolyta take this journey towards self and also recognize that the journey towards self was withheld from her by many people, her family, her spouse, society, And to see her kind of have that aha moment Mm. and connect with the power that was within her, it just, it resonated so deeply with me. Mm. She says in a conversation with Josephine Baker, because one of her time travels was to dance on stage with Josephine Baker in Paris. And so in conversation after the show, she says, now that I'm tasting it, freedom, I've never known it before. I see what I was robbed of back then all those years. I thought I had everything I wanted only to come here and discover all I ever was, was the exact kind of Negro woman my folks wanted me to be. I feel like they just found a smart way to lynch me without me noticing the noose. I mean, and that's because the title of the episode is I Am. Yes. Um, And so what we didn't say in our setup, so shame on me, is as she travels through this portal, I'm assuming these are aliens, whatever it may be, uh, and they ask her, is it who are you or who do you want to be? I forget which one. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it might be. uh, I think it's who do you, who are you? It's who are you? Yeah. So they continually ask her, who are you? Um, and then they also ask her some version of where do you want to be? And so she's going through this, trying to escape the ship, trying to figure it out. And then she blurts out the Josephine Baker thing. She gets there and you see the evolution because when she first lands, she's completely uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, Mm -hmm. I think any of us would, if we just kind of time travel, right? (laughs) but you see her settle into it. And then that's how she gets to the conversation that Kevon just referenced. Mm. It's so beautiful. She says, Josephine Baker says, don't it just make you angry? Hippolyta says, furious. 
Sometimes I just want to kill white folks and it's not just them. I hate me for letting them make me feel small. Right. Mm. What, what I hear from this journey is that I hear two main things. The first thing that I hear is that being uncomfortable, well, getting unco- getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is a, a major component of finding yourself and also taking that journey to discover what's missing, talk about traumas, to identify what was lost in being with certain people and certain relationships, certain family members, certain environments. And that can be very hard. I, I know for me, one of the first questions I sometimes ask in the first um, session or even sometimes in the consult, um, what's your perception of what is therapy? What is your perception of what this journey is going to look like? And are you aware that there will be multiple highs and lows throughout this journey and being comfortable with being uncomfortable would not necessarily be in control mm-hmm. of the entire situation? But there's something beautiful about that. There's yes. something beautiful with being able to be restored in finding yourself and what you lost and being able to answer that question, who am I? Because I know a lot of minority women that I see in my practice, they, the typical answer when they start is, I don't know. Something yes. happened over the last couple of years. Something happened from birth until now that I've lost pieces of myself from this relationship, from this job, from my family member. I don't know who my identity is or it's only related to a one track type of identity. I am a mother, I am a wife. And there's so many different um, facets of who we are as women. And so just to hear that journey and to see that at the end, there is joy, there is no restoration and there is resurrection of who we are now versus who we thought we used to be and who we lost. Right. Yes. That's some great points. Um, you know, because in therapy, so many people think that they're uh, finding this, uh, you know, this new person. Like, you know, this this is a new me, and you start realizing, like, you know, no, this this is who I've been all along, but I've been masking, uh, sending out this representative for all of these years, trying to appease everybody but myself. Um, and you know, when so when you get a client and you get a, uh, you know. Even the the black women that I see are, you know, some of my best sessions. And you're finding this liberation and this empowerment in a way that, you know, I don't have to be uh, like my mother or be like my family members. I'm not worried about I'm not worrying about the judgment that uh, has been passed on me. You know, it's just a sense of freedom. And once you find out who you are, I think it's uh, probably the most liberating thing you can do. Um, So, you know, you got to know who you are and you can't really let others uh, other people's uh, perceptions or opinions that you just weigh you down. You're just carrying around so much uh, generational baggage, you know? Yeah, I agree. You know, what's interesting is for most, since we're talking about Black women, for most Black women, the struggle of really connecting with who you are starts for us in, in childhood, right? Mm-hmm. And and really, I'd go venture to say for, for most women, it starts with the, the Disney movies, when we see the princesses turning into the queens because they've met their prince charming and some schools you're groomed to grow older to be a mom and a wife right the narrative is typically around that and then if you add to that whether you grow up in a religious family or not there's also dynamics associated with that and so 
for most women, when they sit on our couch, it is a series of unlearning that requires you to step so far away from your comfort zone that it can be absolutely jolting. Mm-hmm. And I not only speak from professional experience, but I also speak from personal experience. It is almost likened to the wind being knocked out of you because it's what you described, Anthony, a coming home of sorts because you've been out of body for so long. There's been such a disconnect, but it's also so disheartening to see how far away you got from self. And I got that sense from Hippolyta in this episode. Right. You know, Oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Phil. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, and looking at the process of how she got it, because it increased in intensity. I think you'd agree with that. Uh, yes. Watching it, because it started off testing the waters, going to, you know, be with Josephine Baker. And then after that, she literally goes to war. Yes. Uh, she goes to a village of Black women warriors. Uh, it looks like the, um, the kind of palace guard from Black Panther. Uh, those folks. And so they're training and then she ends up becoming a great warrior and commander. Um, And she follows through on her desires to kill white folks. Now, this is not just wanton murder. At this point, they're defending their homeland. But Mm -hmm. you get to see her go and just embrace all that ferocity and rage and get it out, but truly transition to a point of just kind of metaphorical and literal power. Yeah. Yeah, when she when they fast forward to her being in the African village, the leader of the warriors is saying um, in a speech, when you fall to the ground in defeat, you may find yourself asking, why am I here? Why should I bother getting up when I know a Zika, but insert whoever you want, is a great warrior and I cannot win? Well, I will tell you why you are here and you just and you have to just get up. You are here because you did not believe them your whole life. They told you you were free. And when they said you were free to cook, they meant to cook their food, free to raise their children, uh, free to work for them. They even lied to you and told you you were free to run the world. You are here because you knew that all they could ever offer was the freedom that a well-kept slave could ever ask for. Now, I cannot tell you what true freedom is. You have to go and find that for yourself. But you today are still too afraid to go looking, but I will strip that fear away one blow at a time. Now get up and raise your sword. And that just really made me think about the work that we do as therapists, Mm -hmm. because how many people come and sit on our couches and have this moment where they're like, shit, all they wanted me to do was cook, clean, change the diapers, do these things. They never wanted me to really maximize my full potential. Mm -hmm. And then we are there on the other side saying, But now that you are doing your healing work and you are getting in touch with what true freedom looks like and feels like for you, you don't have to be afraid. Now go out there and conquer the world. Right, that's amazing. Oh, go ahead, Ann. No, go ahead, you go ahead. I was going to say therapy allows for us to, uh, allows for them to strip their fear in a safe place. And that's something that we 
we start building from the very beginning um, um, parts of communicating with someone who's interested in seeking services with us from the very first consult to beyond is that we try to reiterate that therapy is their safe place. So you can be fearful. You can also be vulnerable and you can also be angry that you can go through the wide variety of emotions in that safe mm-hmm. place. And what's interesting in that analogy of comparing therapy to um, Lovecraft country is that we give them swords, multiple ones. That's our mm-hmm. ultimate goal is to give them, as we say, tools and skills to put it in their tool belt to be able to use whenever they're needed, because they're oftentimes relying on the same things that keeps them there and keeps them coming back to the same place. And so therapy empowers them to be um, ready for the battlefield. And that's why we oftentimes, and I just, I joked about this guy, I just said this today, I reiterate, when I give you homework, it's not to just to give you, you know, homework because I want you to do something. It's to allow for you to gain and learn a new skill set and to practice it, mm-hmm. to process it, come back and let me know what worked, what didn't work. So that way we can make sure that you are empowered and you can go tr- for this, um, this journey of self you know, discovery and reach a place of some type of actualization. That's the uniqueness of that comparison. Yes. Yes. It makes me think about the full therapeutic process. And when people get to a space where they're like, you know what, I've got my swords and I'm ready to get out there and slay the dragons that are ahead of me. And if, in the episode, after she beats the, defeats the um, trainer of the warriors, she's crowned by the queen on her throne. Mm-hmm. And then she turns around and she steps out with like this fierceness in her eyes that I'm sure would resonate with any woman that's watching to battle this army of white men. Um, but what also connected with me was the fact that she didn't go out alone. She had her army of sisters behind her. And right. so they went on to defeat this army that was like twice the size of their army, but they did it with like the power of togetherness. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that just, oh, it just gave me all the warm and the fuzzies because here it is, you can draw this parallel to the therapeutic process, but you also could draw this parallel to the importance of a solid village. Mm. I love it, I love it. This is good stuff. And we can't hear you. Your mic went mute. Went, went, went mute. I'm sorry. I was just uh, going to reference. Like I was, uh, I was sitting, um, you know, in the home, my home the other day with uh, my mom and you know my daughter and my wife, and looking at three generations of just black women, and you see how different um, things are between the generations. And I know I can. I reference like a story that my mom always tells about my granddad. You know, we come from a family of land. And how she has like five brothers and five sisters, and how my granddad uh, was just conditioned to give everything to the boys, mm-hmm. and she said that you know, you know, we know we were more than competent, and probably definitely better at managing everything. But how he saw things now to even have those conversations about how she kind of viewed uh, what womanhood was and her growing up, and my wife, she views what she views growing up as a woman. I'm just uh, you know excited to see the changes and the evolution from when my daughter grows up, you know? So it just, uh, so that just made me sit back and think about that. Uh, we're talking about just growing up and, uh, you know, 
And, you know, it's just, it's just interesting to watch how, you know, generations can just cause so much. Um, we don't even realize mm-hmm. how you pass on, but if you break the chains and break the curses, how empowering that could be, you know? Yeah. yeah. But what if we remove race? And it, it made me think of something when Anthony said um, about the generational piece. I remember when um, Teddy was on and we talked about this in the, in the essence of religion. What if we remove race and said one of the biggest battles that we um, we fought was the the whitewashing of our faith and our religion and how many people have felt they have lost pieces of what exactly is our Afrocentric you know, religious beliefs and how do you integrate what our ancestors did and what we have and how often have we been on a journey trying to search for what we was taught versus how we're going to believe and also integrate those types of things into our daily life. So just a thought as to we can use this analogy of this particular um, episode of I am and talk about it from race. We can talk about it from even religion too. So just Mm -hmm. another thought that I had that came to mind. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways that we as black women have to break the chains of doctrine. And, and I think you bring up a, a good, a good area that we also focus on is the, the spirituality piece. Um, and you know, that one, I don't know. I don't know. Sheree, I'm curious to hear what your journey has been like in the spirituality um, realm. What's interesting, so my, my journey came to, um, it came to a head about two weeks ago. So okay. two weeks ago, uh, and I shared this with you um, when we talked last week, I had been wanting to, I had been searching for some answers for the past couple of weeks as to what my next journey would be as far as my private practice and making that grow. And um, in the next five to 10 years, what's my plan? Do I want to stay within higher ed or do I really truly want to be a full-fledged entrepreneur? And so one of my um, closest friends and sorority sisters, her, um, her cousin um, is not only empathic, but she also um, does tarot card readings. And so she had been talking about, you know, her gifts since childhood and how, you know, what it was like growing up with her and how she actually utilizes it now. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to reach out and do a reading. And so already, um, my past beliefs of what I was told was witchcraft, witchcraft, witchcraft. And then I'm just like, but it can't be because she's been having this all her life. And what, what is it to be said when our ancestors were utilizing rocks, trees, herbs to read people and to, um, and to heal people. And so, um, my reading with her was, was mind blowing. It was life giving and life changing. And I'm still processing it to this day. And that was two and a half weeks ago. One of the biggest things that she talked about was my own gifts that I've had, but that I've squelched due to being uncomfortable about Mm. my ability to hear God speak to me and to have visions in the midst of my sessions and trying to determine, you know, do I say that? Do I not say that? Do I share that? Do I not? And when clients like, well, how did you know that? And I'm just thinking, oh, I just, now I'm following the pattern of therapy. I'm looking at things. I'm looking at patterns of behavior. And it truly is more than that. And her confronting me on that and saying, but why can't that be your gift? Why can't God bless you with that? And it matches your ancestral line of the women in your family being healers and also being um, 
what she would term Christian witches, where you all heal through ministry. And I was just amazed just to hear that something that I had been doubting in myself is in my lineage. And that me fighting it and then the church telling me that it was wrong, this is something that my ancestors have been doing for a lifetime. And to, um, as she shared with me, there were many women. She said, this room is full of many generations of women. And one of the main ones who was talking my head off was my grandmother. And if anything, that was the one person that I said I wanted to hear from was her. Because I missed her. I haven't, you know, she died my senior year of high school. And so in my spiritual journey, I came to that conclusion after the session that I was no longer going to be afraid that me taking the the Reiki classes and now actually signing up for crystal work wasn't something out of the norm or something that I'm just being indifferent with. This is actually up my alley of what I'm supposed to do and that it's okay to feel that I can be this way and to do these things and to be a healer in all my gifts. And so I remember um, I texted her last week and I said, I just want to say thank you. Let me tell you what your session did for me. This is what I've been doing. And she just said, and she started crying. She's like, I'm crying because it it lets me know that my gifts are still life-giving also and can have effective change. So my belief is now that, yes, I'm still Christian. Um, The way that I worship is different. Um, I haven't been into a church in probably almost close to a year, but I worship. Every single day I pray, I read the word and everybody who knows me knows I listen to gospel. And this is the phase of my, my life that is the strongest, um, strongest relationship and connection that I've had with God without having to be in church. And so to me, I'm learning that that's okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm curious if you could share with our listeners what that felt like in your body to experience that liberation, because we frequently talk about the unlearning, the process of unlearning, but we also talk about the discomfort that comes from unlearning. And so sometimes people don't see it all the way through because of that discomfort. And so I'm wondering if you can share what that felt like physically for you to see it all the way through and experience that liberation. So I did my reading on Thursday night. Friday was painful. Um, It was a mixture between extremely nauseous, couldn't eat, making myself drink water so I wouldn't get dehydrated, um, constantly challenging myself. But I took notes during my session and going back and, you know, going back to reread it and saying, did I hear this correctly? But no, I I did hear this correctly because she told me to write this point down and this point down. And then she sent me pictures of my of my cards. And so that way I can go back and reference it. And so by Saturday, I remember waking up and it was just me and my younger son at the house um, because my husband, Otis, was at swim lessons. And I I cried from eight o'clock in the morning until he came home at noon. And I just remember crying. And I I remember calling my mama and she's like, "Um, you already know the meaning of that. You know, the meaning of, of what that release is. And my grandma used to always say, let your tears have purpose. And I just wept mm-hmm. and I cried and I worshiped. And I, I ended that day of just saying, I surrender because I know that my gifts is supposed to be a healing mechanism of people in various ways from counseling to energy work into crystal work. And if I'm not obedient, someone is not going to be able to receive that. And it was truly uncomfortable. Um, I felt like I was going through um, mood swings almost every 30 minutes, constantly, you know, checking myself and not believing myself and also just feeling just sick, stomach bubbling and 
nauseous. And so to be completely transparent, that was my day. And it was not something that I wanted to do. I, I didn't think that a simple reading, you know, everybody talk about, oh, God, my reading. And she said, I'm going to do this. And I got love on the way. No, that wasn't my reading. Yeah. And yeah. so that's what I felt. And so the one good thing is that I know that she was the person for me because she still texts me and says, how are you doing? Are you being mm-hmm. obedient? And she doesn't have to do that. She has her own business, but she knows that that the interaction with her was life-changing for me. Yeah, I love that. I'm, as Trinity says, I love that for you. Oh, yes. <laughs> Beautiful. So I, one of the things that you brought up was that, you know, you called your mom. And I know when you and I talked, right, you talked, you had spoken with your sister and then you and I spoke. And it, I think it just really highlights like the importance of a solid village for black women. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. So many black women that I see don't get to experience the relationships with women because of the relationships that they witness in their upbringing. Mm -hmm. And so there are many messages around don't trust women, men make better friends, you know, all those other things that we have heard. And so there's a time period in sessions where we have to talk about the trauma in that message that you can't trust women. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so it's, I think it's beautiful when I experience women that are willing to be in, in relationship with other women, that are willing to, to join villages with other women and, and, and experience what that is to have a healthy relationship. Um, and I just think it's so important for the healing journey as well. Like a lot of this stuff we can't do, do on our own. Like, you know, you know my journey, sis. And you know, you know, Look. there have been many of times where I've been like, this is for the birds. I'll just, just sit this one out. And I have you, I have my other village members that are like, no, because we see it in your eyes and we see it on your skin and we see it in your face. We see the coming home taking place and you just got to ride this thing out. I definitely agree. I try to challenge that those those thoughts, unhealthy thoughts at that, when women say that women can't be friends or they can only be associates because of the competition, the jealousy types of things. I try to reiterate the importance of comparing their relationship with females and sometimes those bad instances or those bad memories to we all have been hurt from various types of people with various, you know, genders and sexualities. Why full stop? I, yeah. Why put a classification on just one sector of people? Yes. Yes. And unfortunately, that's a part of the conditioning that Mm -hmm. has taken place. Think about how powerful we would be as women if we united forces. Right? Like in some of the COVID areas that have done the best, like have had the best clinical outcomes or Mm -hmm. have kept their numbers low, those nations are ran by women. I didn't know that. Yep. New Zealand. Um, I'm just saying New Zealand because it's on the top of my places. (laughs) So forgive me for not having all the data. (laughs) I was definitely waiting on you to go beyond New Zealand. (laughs) You see, I had to drag Zealand out. New Zealand. (laughs) And, and And the others. 
and the others. And the others. We shout you out too. But you know, it's there's just so much power in in women. And I I just love that this show really highlighted that and continues to highlight that Mm -hmm. over all of the episodes. Phil, you brought up that the timing of the show was on par with the verdict, the grand jury verdict. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was another thing that evoked strong emotion for me was when Hippolyta was talking to the women after they had defeated the white um, army, she says, we are here because we did not believe them when they told us our rage was not ladylike. We did not believe them when they said our violence goes too far. We did not believe them when they said the hatred we feel for our enemies was not godlike. They said that because they know what happens when we are free. Free to hate when we must, free to kill when we must, free to bring destruction when we must. That is our freedom. That is our prayer. After we grind them into the dust, that is our love. And so I was like, oh, man, like just the timing of the episode drop, you know, we know it. Malcolm X said it, you know, the most disrespected one person in America is the black in the world is the black woman. Right. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. When Malcolm X said that he wasn't saying it to like just highlight the plight of a black woman. Like, I'm, I think we all are fully aware. He was saying it as a call to arms. Like at some point, you all are going to have to stand up and support Black women because they are the underserved, the underserved. Um, and so to hear Hippolyta, you know, really prepping and priming her, her, her village to, to stand firm and stand true in the fact that you can be loud, you can demand, um, uh-oh, did it cut me off? No, you're Sorry. Good. My phone, I'm fast. You can demand that you are treated equally. You can demand all of those things and don't allow them to make you think that you are less than because you demand. I mean, but if you look at, and I know, Kevon, you said you skipped around to a couple of episodes. Yeah. You look at early on in the series when uh, Letty Lewis or uh, Journey Smollett like gets her house in Chicago. Yes. And yes. she basically is like, all right, y'all are not going to mess with my my stuff. Uh, yes. That was a powerful scene. Um, and then also, I'm not sure if you saw kind of the shape-shifting episode with her sister, Ruby Baptiste. Yes. Mm-hmm. That also, uh, some <laughs> actually one of my uh, friends said that she thought it was kind of hard to watch the ending sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Even then, she got out her catharsis, her rage, and just really established herself in ways that I think, I mean, it's its amazing to watch. Because the same way they took an entire episode to do it for Hippolyta, in this case, I think with each of those characters, there's been an appropriate buildup as well. For sure. Um, and it's to the point where I think because you see the background, it takes away any possibility of the stereotype of angry Black woman. And it's yeah. more somebody is asserting themselves or protecting themselves. And it really helps you to understand. I think Black viewers probably get a little bit more. But when you yeah. see that burden that folks are carrying around, and then after a while, it's like the only person that can, in this case at least, relieve me of this is myself. Then it's not just, why are you so angry? It's, I see what you're doing and I support it. For sure. 
for sure. I love that. I love that. Just curious, um, what was mm-hmm. difficult about the um, the ending scene um, that your friend mentioned was so hard about? I didn't see that episode. Uh, the long and short of it is somebody gets sodomized with a high heel. Yeah. Okay. Noted. Gotcha. Yeah. That can be very um, triggering and also hard to see. But it was also uh, vindicated, given the context. Noted. Yeah. Noted, noted. Yeah. And I want to go back to this this fallacy, this this stereotype of the angry black woman. I want to go on record to say there is no such thing. There is no such thing as the angry black woman. And if as a black woman you are angry, there's probably a reason for that. All emotions are emotions and we honor them equally, but we also do the work to uncover the underlying emotion. What is driving that source of anger? And if you really think about Black women in America, we actually have a lot to be quite angry about. So what's your definition of the angry Black woman? I'm curious. I don't have a definition of the angry Black woman because I don't subscribe to that notion. Okay. What's yours? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've seen I some angry black women. So okay, uh, talk about it. Right. So um, you know, I think that I think from that trauma, I think if that trauma goes unhealed, um, and I think if it's not addressed, I think I think that you can become, in a sense, carrying around anger. And so, mm-hmm. so I agree. I agree with you that there's trauma there behind it, um, but I don't think that negates the fact that you may be an angry black woman. That's so I agree with you, right. but that also is true for angry black men. That right. is true for angry white women, That's angry true. white men. It's true across the board. But the only person that wears the negative connotation of that stereotype is black women. I agree. I agree. I agree. So I, yeah, I completely, I, I completely agree because uh, there are, you know, like you said, different genders, different races, um, and I think black women do. Uh, they, you know, you guys definitely take the, take, take the, uh, the weight of that, and that shouldn't be that way because it's definitely uh, it goes around across the board for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, right. Oh, look at us agreeing on something. <laughs> I know you and Ed. <laughs> Oh, who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could have went left. It could have. It has gone before and it's recovered. So it is what it is. <laughs> but no, I just, I, black women wear that burden. Of, not all black women, but many black women wear the burden of that stereotype on their sleeves. And it can be so limiting. Um, and it, I'm sorry. I was just saying that, you know, because I and another reason I was speaking of it from a sense of like, you know, relationship trauma. Mm-hmm. That I think a lot of people um, experience and, uh, you know, I see a lot of men as well uh, in, in couples counseling as well, um, who who definitely are, you know, they're facing a lot of uh, relationship trauma that maybe their significant other has had experience. And now they're kind of, you know, catching that on the back end in their new relationship. So it's hard to really, that's what I'm saying. If, if things aren't healed or addressed, then it, it, and both parties are just carrying around, even the, uh, even like you said, even men who, who had relationships with that, you know, 
um, where they feel like a woman may have uh, done them wrong or, you know, and they carry that into new relationships. And you have to address that stuff before uh, before really healing and moving on to a, to a new relationship, friendship, uh, you know, intimate relationship, anything, you know. So mm-hmm. you got to address those uh, challenges. For sure. For sure. And so the ultimate question I got from a client today on this very same topic is how much of that has to be healed or at least addressed within the individual person before they're ready for a relationship? Because we often have that, that old adage of, I need to be, quotation, perfect. Um, I need to be completely healed um, before I can go into another relationship. So how much truth um, does that have when it comes to you all's opinion of that? I mean, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. Mm -hmm. I think it's more about just behavior and outcomes. You know, because things can trigger you but I think it's being aware of those triggers and finding appropriate ways to cope with it. And so if you're not aware of those things, then you're going to go on to autopilot and go back to those behaviors that didn't serve you. And so I don't think, I think it's, you know, kind of like with anything else, whether you want to go with exposure therapy or just opportunities to practice in a very practical type of way, as it becomes less muscle memory, less reflex, or at least you're changing the reflex, I think that's it. And I mean, I think it also depends on the partner that you choose um, and kind of how they are able to absorb some of that as you're working through it. Um, So, I mean, yeah, if you're just going automatically every single time back to the old thing, maybe it's a bit much. Uh, And you just kind of start off with small exposures and just build it slowly but surely. Yeah. I also think it's important for people to understand that healing is never a full stop. There's never like an end to the journey of healing. You might overcome a thing. And then as soon as you overcome that thing, something else comes up and you're like, oh, that's something else that I've unearthed that I need to work on. And that is the cycle of healing. And I think as we continue to advocate more for therapy and it becomes more a topic of conversation, excuse me, that I oftentimes see people feel defeated when things come up and they have to do the work on that thing. And it's like, no, that just means that you are aware of triggers, you are aware of hurt, and that just gives you something else to work on. It's not a bad thing. Um, but the healing journey, it, it, it just, it never ends. I personally wouldn't want to be in relationship with someone that is, that claims they are completely healed of all the things in, in their past. Like, and I'm not saying I, I like, I don't want the broken either, <laughs> but I, I just think it's a, it's a continual journey, this, this journey of evolution. So I'm going to challenge that a little bit. Okay. The idea of being healed for me, my connotation of it is recovering from an injury. And so because you're recovering from an injury doesn't mean that you're shut off to any other forms of evolution in life. I think that's the stuff that you need to work on on your end. So that way you're more available to make those changes with somebody else if you choose to in a relationship. Uh, Because regardless of whether or not somebody else is there, you still need to get to that point of healing. Just for the for sure, for sure. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you cut off yourself from other interactions, relationships, or things that factor into your behavior and how you do things. 
Yeah. And I think the process of self-examination and change is something that's ongoing. I just think healing versus bonding into another relationship and all those things are the motivation and kind of how you determine what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. No, I agree with you on that. I agree with you that no one should isolate themselves for the purposes of experiencing healing. Because as we've talked about, like it's a village thing. And in many of the African villages, that is how killing took place, is the villages surrounded around that individual that was wounded. Um, but I also think that like our injuries are, are not one and done. And oftentimes we don't recognize that an injury took place until we're faced with a trigger that reminds us of the injury. And so then that's when that journey for, towards healing happens again. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It makes total sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's a combination of um, listening to Phil and taking the, that last statement he said, and I don't want to um, rephrase it wrong, but understanding that, that we can heal, but there are many external factors and just life within itself that can re-trigger. It can actually cause a brand new injury. Um, yeah. So I, we just have to be cognizant when we talk about healing. It, you know, the use of ING has purpose. It can mean present tense and future, which means that it's ever evolving. And what it looks like as far as um, 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 healing to you will be different from person to person. Yes. And I want to say for all of, you know, our church members out there, we're not talking about like physical healing, like from ailments, because you can be completely healed. hmm hallelujah from a physical L like you can be <laughs> so we're not talking about that we're talking about the journey of of self-healing like the emotional healing the the work that we have to put in to to unlearn and relearn it's ongoing and 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 a part of that is contributed to the fact that we don't live in a perfect society Mm-hmm. And so you recover from something and then you look on the news and another black man is murdered. And so now that's something else I got to do some work around. Right. I definitely agree. I love the hallelujah. Uh, you know, hallelujah, hallelujah. So um, I want to, since we talked about a little bit about relationships, I love that you guys said that because towards the end of the episode, Hippolyta is in the bed with her now deceased husband, George. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was so profound, the conversation that they had. She wakes up in the bed and she's discussing all of these new discoveries with George about who she is. And he's listening intently. And she shares that she experienced a world where she can make herself anything. She says, I thought I was missing you when you were out on the road, but I realized I was angry, so angry, because for so much of my life, I've been shrinking. When I was a kid, I thought I was big enough to have every right to name something out of this world, and then I just started shrinking myself. By the time I met you, I had already gotten so small, and I thought you knew how big I wanted to be. I thought you saw me, but you just stood by and let me shrink myself more for you. George says, Lida, why didn't you tell me you felt this way? Lida says, I tried. I really tried too many times. I tried to explain myself. You had to see that. George says, maybe I did, but I fell in love with you because you were so curious and I knew deep down inside there was a discoverer in you. He pauses. You're right. 
I led you. I helped you shrink so we could have a family, so I could go out and do what I had to do and know that you were safe at home waiting for me. I'm so sorry. I see now that it costs you. I see now, Hippolyta Freeman, and I want you to be as big as you can be. And then she says, I am Hippolyta, the discoverer. And girl, I'm telling you, the episode is powerful. And it made me think how many Black women are out there still waiting on the apology. I'm at a loss for words because that question within itself is is so heavy. Waiting for the apology, thinking that the apology will allow for them to um, to start the process, to make even more movement in the process, or to actually say that I'm healed, duh, once I get that apology. And that's powerful key. What I try to emphasize with women who have that question or that is spoken or unspoken in sessions is to ask the ultimate question is, what will the apology do for you? Let's map out um, what the apology will create, what the apology will allow for you to now think, what, uh, what the apology will now allow for you to behave differently. And so I like to map that part out. And so they can begin to see it visually. And sometimes they, they don't even have the answers to that because they're just thinking that the apology will be the resolution to everything. In the end will be you know, healing. Helping them to map it out allows for them to put it on paper and give them some points of accountability and also like a roadmap. And then also the next kind of stage I use to kind of draw a line and make another column is I ask the ultimate question, can you get here from, some, from something else, from someone else, from, a, um, from counseling or anything along those lines to help them to see that that may not be the only route to get you to that place compared to waiting for the apology because it may never come. Or it may never be the apology, um, the apology may not be in the way um, said or received in the way that you need it to be. I mean, and uh, I, I'm glad you put it that way of it may never come. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of people put things on pause until the apology gets there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I'm hearing you say is you can start working before it gets there. Uh, because I feel like a lot of times the narrative and agenda of therapy can seem like we're trying to push people away from relationships and everything. Mm-hmm. While ultimately what we're trying to do is push people away from things that aren't working for them. But I also think we need to take a step back and acknowledge just what an apology can mean. Uh, if you think about patients you've worked with who have had traumatic experiences that have happened at the hands of other people and how they've had to try and understand this thing that was so horrific and so wrong. I don't know about you guys, but I find just naming that something was wrong for them mm-hmm. is kind of a start because, you know, you're trying to figure out fault, what happened and everything else. And so the idea of somebody apologizing to you and acknowledging, one, that it was wrong, that they were wrong for doing it for you, I mean, to you, rather, kind of takes away a lot. Because I think a lot of times when things go wrong, it is our natural inclination to figure out, at the most benign, what went wrong. On the opposite side, it's who to blame. And so I think that allows us to start the process of rebuilding. Because if you think about it, you know, we can say, in therapy at least, you don't need that apology, 
to keep building, keep moving forward, and hopefully the apology comes. But if you think about the history of racial trauma in this country, you know, who was it? I can't remember if it was Canada or Australia. One country that wasn't the United States got all types of props for just saying, hey, we were tripping with this race stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so imagine if the U.S. said that, you know, it just kind of started there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I'm saying, like, that can bring a lot of things. And so with this particular scene, for me, it was wild and it was powerful. And I like the way they wrapped it up because she goes through, she says, I am, I am, I am. And she says, I am George's wife. She gets there, like mm-hmm. Kevon says, and she's able to have that closure because in real life, George is dead. And so I think a part of her searching for answers is trying to find that resolution mm-hmm. and she gets to have it in that moment. And I think that kind of ties up that final loose end for her. And the dope part for me is that after that, they do the exploring together because I was wondering, I was like, all right, we see this strong woman go through. And so does her healing end at basically is her being not necessarily subservient, but partnered again with her husband an essential part of the narrative, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, is she not able to be whole on her own? But then what I realized, at least what I got from it was she was able to come to this relationship from a much more equal standing and there was much more choice and power involved and then they could grow and glow together. And I think that was really more of her desire because she has been curious, she has been an adventurer. And if you look at the prior episodes, all she wanted to do was go out and do the same type of exploring that George was doing. And so for her to be the, I guess you say, entry point for them to go and explore beyond what they ever thought of, I think there's a certain equality and power that comes from redoing that and not in a kind of Disney princess, you had to save me from this. Yes. Uh, yes, Phil. Come on, Bars. <sighs> because that, that goes into the connotation of the happily ever after. In order to have a happily ever after, you typically yes. have to have a prince are a male come and save you to get you to that destination, to that dream. And that's not true. Yeah. I almost thought I was going to see, I'll never forget um, to stay along that framework when I first saw the princess and the frog and I was watching it. And she's like, no, I don't need you. Then at the very end, I was like, no, you just ruined a perfectly good movie. You all could have did the dang thing and just say, you know, she can come back. No, the frog may have had to kiss her, but she didn't have to save him in order to get the restaurant to have a happily ever after. So just my little soapbox on that. I'm waiting for Disney to do that. Just waiting. I will say, thinking of Disney flicks, though, I have been paying attention to them and finding it dope that some stories they'll kind of throw you for a curveball where true love can be the love of a sister, the love of, you know, family member, things like that. And it doesn't always kind of have to go through the prince. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's pretty dope. Uh, and I haven't seen the remake, but that's one of the reasons Mulan is one of the dopest Disney shows yes! out there. Yes! Uh, definitely just goes off. And I'm also kind of nerdy and enjoy anything that's kung fu oriented. But uh, but yeah, you know, that um, when I finally saw Frozen, I was like, oh, okay, they hit you with a curveball. Uh, same thing with Maleficent, you know, like all of those things. Uh, I think they're being more savvy and kind of decompressing the messages that they're largely responsible for putting out there uh, for really our generation. Yeah. <laughs> Change it up, Disney. Change it up. For sure. I was about to say, Mulan will forever be my favorite because of that. 
I just, I love Mulan. Um, and I love that she didn't need anybody's permission. She was like, you know what? I'm finna go out here and I'm finna fight this war. And when I come back, y'all can say thank you. Hmm. <laughs> that is true. Yep. <laughs> It's my favorite. I can't tell you much about all the other Disney movies. I can't tell you much about movies, period. But that one, fake. <laughs> let's hear from you. What, what, what are your thoughts on all of this? Now, I'm a, you know, I'm a huge, let me tell you my story about Milan. So I, I forgot how old I was when it first came out. But I was pissed. I was with my uh, female cousin. And it was her turn to pick. And she said, I want to go see Milan. I said, oh, it's a girl movie. I don't know. I want to see Milan. You know, I came out, man... And it definitely is in my top three. Um, you know, the soundtrack, uh, the message, just, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy. I mean, everything was just great in it, you know, so I definitely love it. But, you know, um, back to, I wanted to do make some comments about the whole, the independence. And I think that Disney does, um, you know, portray the fact that they, like a man has to come and save someone. I, you know, it, it completely not true, completely like true. And I just want, I just the message I'm trying to get out is that, you know, I think that um, this may be the powers that be, but I don't want us to keep thinking that, you know, we have to be separated or divided in this. I, I believe there's the strength in family and, um, and unity when, 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 to, when everybody comes together as a family. And I think each, people, each person in a relationship can be independent, um, but there's still power in being together and creating that family. And so many families are broken, and it was designed to be broken, um, by, uh, you know, white people for years ago. You know, let me say, let's break up these homes. Let's break up these families. And um, so I think there's a balance between knowing that we are on the same team. And I think that's what you, when you mentioned that charge that Malcolm called years ago, it's the charge to step up and protect our women versus, uh, you know, making them believe that, okay, no, we have to be divided or we, no, we need to separate I don't believe we need to separate. You know, we're, we're more powerful together and our families are stronger together. And I think that um, a lot of people try to, they don't really find the balance within it. It's like, oh, you know, I can do this on my own. I'm independent. I don't need you for nothing. But I think that, um, I, think we, I think we need each other more than ever um, together yeah. as, a, as a family, as a unit, as a people. Um, so, um, yeah, we'll just stick together and not be divided. I, I agree that. There, we need to be together in, in, in some way. Like we need to definitely be together. But I also want to acknowledge that families can look different. And I, I want to be sensitive to that because there's such a strong pick-me culture centered around the Black church for Black women. And so it can be very easy for women to feel less than, feel unworthy if they have not been able to achieve that goal of having a family. And so it's important that we really emphasize that a family, a family is what you create. You create that family, you know, and families can look different. You can have your, you know, traditional household spouse, et cetera, but then you also could have a family of sorority sisters and you can have a family of colleagues at work if you're fortunate right. enough to work in a familial environment. You can have a family built out of your neighbors if you've got awesome neighbors, right? And so it's it's not just one size fits all. Right, right, definitely. 
Um, so before we wrap up tonight, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the Real Housewives of Potomac as it relates to this. Phil's face is tote up from the flow up. <laughs> now, here's the reason why. Because on the last episode, two of the cast members got into a physical altercation. And so the aftermath of that was the women sitting together with one of the women who, Monique Samuels, who is the antagonist in this situation. And so the other housewives are sitting around and they are saying to her, you know, you were wrong for that. You set black women back you know, decades for all the work that we've done for Black women. You just single-handedly unturned that and really shamed her for this moment. And so I wanted us to have a little bit of a conversation around the weight that comes with being a Black woman and separating society's ideas of a Black woman from personal experiences as a Black woman. I believe, I, I, I believe society tells us that Black women, um, we really have, in my opinion, we have two different versions of who we are. We either are the caregiver, the homemaker, I do everything for everyone. And so, and typically as it's portrayed in a lot of movies and, you know, um, and even sometimes in, in our society within certain cultures is that um, my role is to make sure I provide as far as that nurturing, that caregiving piece and be sometimes as I heard some of my women say, be everything to everybody. Or sometimes that's yeah. what I tell them. Then on the other hand, if I am not motherly or I'm not sisterly or I'm not the most um, emotional, then I'm the exact opposite to the extreme. I am the angry black woman, I'm the bitch. And so when it comes to the formation of friendships and talking about this possibly particular episode, what I hear has been done is that they portrayed her to be the spokesperson for all black women. And she's not, she makes mistakes, she's human, she can do whatever. And so she can't represent the whole race of black women of making us look bad because she's not the representation that we chose. Um, and I don't believe we, we don't even have that ability to do that. We choose our president, we choose our, you know, our political party, we choose that, but we can't choose somebody to be our national spokesperson. That's just not it. And that's what has continued to lead to the perpetuation of why many of us as black clinicians and black people are tired of being in these conversations on racial, just, racial and social injustice, because we're not the spokesperson for all black people. We can speak of our experience, we can educate you and give you knowledge, but that's it. And so we as black women are not the extremes of the continuum. We're not Betty homemakers and Aunt Jemima's, and we're also not, um, what, what was her name? Oh, she had, I'm, I'm thinking of the girl from, um, she had an African name and she was on the um, TV show with Trump. I cannot think of her name right now. Omarosa. 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 We're not Omarosas. And so, and then it's also okay to say that we can be both and we can be all of that. And some of us may want children. Some of us may not. Some of us may, you know, want a career. Some of us may want to make our career to be able to take care of our home. 
it's okay to be fluid. And I don't think that oftentimes we have choice in that. And that's my opinion is that I'm both. I'm career minded. And then I also want to make sure that my family's taken care of. And so sometimes I go hard for my family and I you know I cut things off to make sure I'm present. And sometimes, you know, I spend long hours at work and I can be both. And I don't have to be a label of that or this. I'm just charade and I'm multifaceted. I love that. Love that. Love that too. I'm glad. You know, find, you know, being who you want to be. I mean, that's just it's beauty in that. It's beauty in that. Yeah. You know, I think I think it's I think uh, I'm, I'm just listening. I'm just pr- kind of processing what you were saying, uh, Sheree, and just thinking about you know how good that must feel to be able to you know do that because there's so much pressure um, that comes. Like I said, I'm not a black woman, but I could I could, I could imagine that there's so much uh, pressure that comes with that. And uh, what road does a person take? You know, you know, because some days I wake up and I'm like you know what? I just want to take care of my family. I'm gonna stay at home all day. I want to. I want to be. A, I want to be a stay-at-home dad. And you know, sometimes I question, like, man, how would that be received if I woke up today and just said, you know, I want to be a stay-at-home dad. Um, so you know, it's just you know, it's it's always. I think that's that back of our mind thing. We always think about, you know, what what people think or what people say or can I do this? Can I be comfortable in doing what I want to do? And um, you know, so when you being who you want to be or doing what you want to do, and you know that's not reality sometimes because you know bills got to get paid and different things you got to do what you got to do of course but um you know that freedom is everything so i'm just man, rambling just man thinking. bump that please come save me <laughs> please <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah i need some, i need about i just need four months i will i will trade it all in okay i will watch the kids like a mama. i'm serious watch the kids be present on the pta I'm gonna work out a whole lot, do some yoga, and some cooking. All right. Come on, you sound like my husband. Okay. Talking, we're not ever going back to the states. I'm not ever going back to work. That's my work saying. is taking care of these boys. I was like, okay, come on, yeah. I'm here That's for freedom. it. That's freedom. That's freedom. See, you I need that. I'm here for it. Baby, would you like some tea from this cardamom plant that I planted in the? In the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> yes. Because yes. at that point, it's job security. Okay. <laughs> so you giving it your all <laughs> exactly I'm not trying to get fired no replace or furloughed okay <laughs> I'm here for it I'm here for it yes but you know I, I love this conversation guys Phil picks out the best topics for episodes and so I think we are going to appoint him one you're the- too generous two by decline what if declination isn't an option now i know what you're going to say the therapist thinks you got boundaries and that's your boundary and all of that jazz but i just i i want you to reconsider okay you put me as long as we can throw pussy valley in there we gotta throw (laughs) pussy valley in there I think we should let Ant choose all of the episodes. <laughs> you want to talk about Pussy Valley so bad. Who he does. This is like the third time he's seen it. I haven't seen it yet, but I, I got to say, just just yeah. throwing in those couple of syllables has sullied the show for myself. <laughs> yeah, you got to watch it, Phil. Just watch three episodes. Just watch the first three. I'm hooked. just saying, like, am I streaming this to my television or my laptop? 
Bring me to the television. You need all the big pictures. All the big pictures. No, I'm just saying, throwing in that title, that's a different type of movie. <laughs> Nobody calls it that, Phil. It's P-Valley. The oh, I, I know. I know. That's why you call me on golf. Aunt insists on calling it that. Listen, they hide, they they like they like blur it out, but it's definitely Pussy Valley. Has anybody watched it but me? No. Oh, you know what I, mean? I watch. I watched the first two episodes. I, I please. I don't want to get any hate mail. I could not get. I know, like I have fans. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like we got mailboxes. <laughs> hey, we even got upgraded. Gonna <laughs> be the same bills in the mailbox that were there last month. <laughs> uh, apparently, we got somebody about for a PPP loan on our behalf. <laughs> I could not get into the show, and everybody keeps saying, "Like you got to keep watching it. It gets better. It gets better." I just couldn't get into the show, so I don't know. I think I, I, I guess I'll maybe give it one more try. Yeah, give pussy one more try. <laughs> oh my goodness! I promise it. <laughs> You're gonna <laughs> like it. You're gonna like it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not with him. <laughs> I came on my own in my own car. We just happened to walk in and they sat us at the same table. <laughs> like, that was just what happened. Period. All right. So before this thing goes way left, maybe we should wrap it up and conclude for the night because leave it to Ant. He gonna, he gonna take it there. Every single so, time. Every every time we can count on him for that, he's consistent with that. So, Phil, take it away. So bossy. <laughs> Phil, you got bullied this whole episode, bro. You, what is that? You've been getting bullied this whole episode, man. This has just been crazy. Oh, maybe it's Jedi level bullying because I don't feel bullied. Um, um, trauma man that's what happens everybody maybe i'm attaching to it because it's so familiar right right there you go oh no process and i need to continue on mine (laughs) so dr phil murray happy to bring you this week's moment of reflection uh as we talk about lovecraft uh which is I don't even know if it counts as art imitating life, but which has turned into just a beautiful ode to blackness in the midst of such a desolate situation. Uh, within that, we get to see humanity. We get to see the full feelings of emotions and true catharsis when it's absolutely necessary. This particular episode came during a time that I think we all could use some of that, but I think it also provides lessons on how we get to a space of healing and of sustenance in the midst of feeling so powerless. Sometimes you can do it on your own. Sometimes you need to retreat, but other times you need to know when to really lean into your village and just rest and scream and let the emotions occur. So that way you can come back stronger and better and ready, able to fight another day. I love it. Well, this is why we call on Phil. Is that why they call? Is that why his mom named him? He carries he carries these speeches around in his pocket on index cards. He pulls them out and is just ready to go. Just ready to go. Beautiful, Phil. It's beautiful. 
listen guys we are so grateful that y'all keep sticking around and waiting for us to drop another episode um we're going to try to be a lot more consistent i think everybody's kind of getting settled into their new homes and their new countries and their new roles and so you know hopefully we'll be a little bit more consistent with the episodes until the next time we'll catch you later ciao bye guys Adios. All right. Y'all have a good night. Adios, fam. Y'all have a good night. You too.